Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Neil Ferguson is one of the world's most renowned historians. He's the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and has held positions as Professor of History at Harvard, New York University, and Oxford. He's also known as one of the more vocal critics of modern academia and is one of the founders of a new, fiercely independent university in Austin, Texas. And he joins me now. Welcome, Neil. Uh, you've stated something is rotten in the state of academia. There are a number of issues that you could point to, grade inflation, the cost, discrimination, but actually uh, what you're focused on is the erosion of academic freedom. What, why is that? Lay it out for me, would you, Neil? Well, Mariana, anybody who has had nothing to do with universities since they graduated, uh, who hasn't really been around universities for the last five years or so, will not realise how extraordinarily uh, the atmosphere has changed. Uh, we've we've become in academia, and I think this is true not only in the U.S. Extraordinarily nervous about saying what we think. Heterodox Academy is a, an excellent institution that tries to uh, push back against this kind of thing. But they did a recent survey on campus expression, which found that sixty-two percent of college students in the U.S. felt they couldn't say what they thought. Uh, and that's that's up from 55% in, in 2019. There was another survey by the Challey Institute, which found that, and I found this one especially shocking, 85% of self-described liberal students would report a professor to the university administration if the professor said something that they found offensive. I mean, 76% would report another student. And this kind of reporting, denunciation, informing, call it what you like, is is rife all i think because not so much of theories but of practices that have crept into academic life and then spread very rapidly 
the net effect of which is to chill speech and make people afraid to articulate their thoughts. Now, how can universities function in that kind of climate? It seems to me paradoxical that of all the institutions in America, universities have become the ones most hostile to free speech. What would you say to those who would say that perhaps this is a generational thing and that actually uh, this is a younger generation who want to get rid of the old sort of hegemonies and they're just making their voices heard? Do they have a right to well, not hear what they, what they feel to be offensive and left over from the past? Well, John Haight, who founded Heterodox Academy, and Greg Lukianoff, who founded a thing called FIRE, which is all about free expression, wrote an excellent book uh, a couple of years ago, The Coddling of the American Mind, in which they, they argue that the generation that is around 20 at this point is very anxious, fearful, and uneasy with, uh, with discomfort, emotional discomfort. I'm not convinced of this, because what strikes me is that there are plenty of undergraduates who don't like this, atmosphere of, of walking on eggshells and th- this is this is this is not a majority phenomenon but but rather minorities uh vocal and somewhat aggressive minorities use uh their their power in the current climate to to inhibit everybody else it's not as if this is a, a popular climate when you when you ask students are you okay with this they, they don't say Yes, we, we love the fact that we can't speak our minds. On the contrary, it's clear that a majority of students are very dissatisfied with the experience they're getting in college. At any event, the, the idea of creating a new university is based on two insights. One, that it's very difficult to change the established institutions from within. There's, there's no pendulum that's about to swing back as far as I can see. And secondly, if we can model what a free-speaking, free-thinking campus is like, uh, then I think we can help other universities to, to course-correct. I mean, competition is, is an important force in, in academia, and the United States has always been a place where there was quite healthy com- competition between universities, public and private universities. And I think we're, we're just trying to add a new element to that competition by by creating a new institution that does things differently. And I think if we succeed, we will start to attract very strong students because smart people don't want to be gagged. They don't want to be censored, particularly when they're aged between 18 and 22, when you most need to take risk in the classroom. You most need to be able to say things that might seem a little outrageous. That's that's how we learn. I mean, that that's the essence of, of what I experienced at Oxford back in the 1980s. And if I were 18 today, and I, I often think that I'm doing this for my imaginary 18-year-old self, I wouldn't know where to go. It would be such a dispiriting prospect to have to go to Harvard or Yale and sign up to a whole range of orthodoxies, which you're not allowed to question without getting cancelled. Interestingly, um, you know, you say that, I mean, you know, I didn't go to university. And for me, the, the, the thought of, of, of spending, you know, three or four years, you know, being exposed to every kind of idea and thought possible in order to be allowed to form your own opinions, uh, you know, shaped by knowledge of what's gone before. You know, I mean, I just to me, university has always seemed the place where big ideas are discussed. But actually, you argue um, in a recent uh, piece, Bloomberg, um, that, that they haven't always been. Uh, as such, and that that's a relatively new concept anyway with universities. 
we shouldn't create some kind of imaginary golden age. Universities are interesting institutions. They've been around a long time, almost a millennium. If you go back to the origins of the European universities in Bologna and Oxford, and over that time, a great many things have changed, not least technology. But the, the idea that you bring people together in one place and you create these slightly artificial conditions that isolate them from the market and the need to earn their daily crusts, and you give them some period of years to study, it's, it's all about intergenerational transfer of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, older professors are, are kind of communicating their ideas to, to the next generation, and the next generation is kind of educating itself. That's the ideal. Uh, but of course, there have been periods when the atmosphere in universities has been anything but free, periods when universities serve to promote particular religious doctrines. Uh, Gibbon, the great uh, Edward Gibbon, uh, perhaps the most successful of all historians, author of Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, found his time at Oxford the least interesting of his life. And many great scholars have flourished outside universities. On the other hand, if one looks at the period from, let's say, the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, when universities became secular, they ceased to have a predominant religious uh, orthodoxy, those, those universities were an enormous force for, on balance, good. And, and it's hard to imagine, just to throw out a couple of examples, the Allies winning World War II, if they hadn't been able to tap the extraordinary academic talents of both sides of the Atlantic that produced Bletchley Park, cracked the, the German codes, and of course, the Manhattan Project, which came up with the atomic bomb and ended the war in Asia. So I think if one looks at the modern university, rather than the medieval or early modern university, it's a, an extraordinary institution. And the idea, which I know some people adhere to, that we just don't need these things anymore, thanks to the internet, I don't buy that at all. I think universities are, are indispensable, and they will, they will persist regardless of the technological environment. But I, I now realise that I was lucky in the 1980s. We, we kind of arrived at Oxford, I and my contemporaries, after really most of the restrictions on academic life had gone, and we were in a period of pretty radical free speech uh, in the 1980s. And, and I think perhaps we took it for granted. And I, de I did assume that this would be the norm for the whole of my career. If you told me in the early 80s that by 2021, there would be restrictive speech codes that you would have to subscribe to uh, ideals of diversity, equity, and inclusion to be considered for a post at the University of California, I'd have been amazed. So I, I underestimated the extent to which illiberal ideas and ways of behaving could make a comeback. Uh, that, that's really the thing that, that I've learned over the last 25 or 30 years in academia. Even in a free society, people can opt for unfreedom. Um, do you subscribe to them when you're giving your lectures? Do you think about the, the words that you use? Do you remove the words you think will cause offence, be deemed offensive, cause friction? My approach to, to teaching has always been to make sure that my own political orientations are not visible, that I'm not using the position of professor to indoctrinate students Secondly, when I'm teaching, I want to make sure that there's a Socratic dialogue going on. I'm asking questions, I'm getting answers, I'm forcing the students to, to think about their own positions. And that I think 
in that context, the classroom should be a, a dynamic place. And thirdly, I don't think it's a good idea, uh, if that's what you're trying to achieve, to feel extraordinarily uh, nervous about uh, the language that you use for fear of giving offence. No, nobody wants to be offensive, and I certainly have never taught in order to be offensive, but I don't think it's very conducive to good teaching to be worried that if you say the wrong thing, use the wrong term, that it can be taken out of context and, uh, and used against you. And this is what is happening more and more uh, at universities. I wouldn't have felt the need to go ahead with a new institution if I hadn't seen colleagues at different universities having their careers ended by the kind of hostility that, for example, Kathleen Stock encountered at Sussex recently because her views on, on gender and sex were deemed to be heretical by uh, a militant, uh, uh, militant group or grouping on the, on the transgender side. So you, you've got to kind of ask the question, what's the purpose of a university? And the purpose of the university should not be to enforce a series of dogmas by excluding from the classroom uh, certain positions. That just can't be compatible with a healthy institution. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You say that these are minority groups of students in the main and that the majority of students want to be able to express themselves and, and say what they think. So where do these minority groups get their power from? How are they managing to, to, to wield this sort of power unless they have a, a, you know, a, a, a majority behind them? You certainly don't need a majority uh, amongst undergraduates to create this kind of climate of fear. And I, I use the term fear advisedly it is extremely nerve-wracking uh, for professors to know that uh, proportions of the, the student body and of their colleagues and of the administration are willing to call for their uh, 
the dismissal if they say the wrong thing. And this is something that comes out very clearly from a recent report on academic freedom that, that shows that really large proportions, particularly of young professors, favor the idea of dismissal of colleagues if they, if they express views that they consider heretical. So this climate of fear arises through an interesting alliance. Uh, but the other thing that's really important is that administrations, bureaucracies have grown. Uh, in, the in the last few decades, the, the numbers of managerial or professional staff, non-academic staff, have exploded at American universities. And within this expansion of the bureaucracy, you'll find a, an important group. These are people whose responsibility it is to police norms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, who, are, who are empowered to look for cases of, of bias, implicit or otherwise. And my friend Sam Abrahams has argued convincingly in his research that if you think professors are to the left of center, just wait till you meet the administrators. So what often happens is that uh, a minority of, of disaffected undergraduates will team up with uh, left of center faculty and crucially administrators to go after someone. And a good example of this is what happened to Trent Colbert, a Yale Law School student, who became the target of a campaign because he, he invited uh, his fellow students to what he called a Constitution Day bash at his, quote, trap house. And this led to an allegation of racism, uh, even although Colbert himself is not white, uh, because allegedly the term trap house had some adverse or negative connotation. What was striking about this story was the role of the diversity director at Yale Law School, who threatened him uh, that if he didn't sign a groveling apology, it would affect his career. And that kind of thing is, I think, quite typical of the new environment in which mm. somebody complains and then the bureaucracy goes into action and students find themselves intimidated into apologizing. And so do professors. It's a very nerve wracking thing if the diversity director calls you up and says we have a problem because we know from multiple cases uh, that this can be career ending. That's why I think the, the climate of fear has become so toxic. And mm. every week, it seems one reads new cases of of, of cancellations. Dorian Abbott was going to give a lecture at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's a geophysicist at Chicago. It got cancelled at the last minute because he, in a completely different context, had been critical of the idea of affirmative action. That's the thing that I think motivated me to feel we needed a new institution, not least to offer a, a, a refuge to, to cancelled professors. Yeah, it's a nice home for cancelled professors. Nice idea. Uh, but, um, for example, King's College London uh, did a recent poll on, on no platforming. And uh, while half of the public is against uh, barring speakers because of their views, only a third, 32% of those aged 16 to 24, oppose the practice compared to 60% of over 55s. I mean, you know, I know I asked you already, but are we sure this isn't a generational thing, uh, you know, on which... Um, you know, we stand perhaps against the prevailing winds only because it's not how we see the world should be. I don't think there's any question that, that Generation Z, as they, they call the 20-somethings these days, 
have a different attitude towards uh, speech. Uh, they're very inclined to say, oh, I'm in favor of free speech, except when somebody <laughs> says something offensive, which of course is the complete contradiction of the idea of, of free speech. But let's ask the question, uh, as I said, uh, universities are about transfer of knowledge and wisdom between the generations. Do we want the tone at universities to be set by undergraduates who wish to cut themselves off from ideas that make them feel uncomfortable? I mean, I don't think that that's the right direction to go in. On the contrary, I think we owe it to this next generation to persuade them that free speech, to be challenged, to hear uncomfortable ideas, all of these things are part and parcel of a free society. And if you give those things up, you'll be surprised what else you end up giving up. In the end, mm -hmm. what to me is troubling about some of the behaviors I see on universities is that they're strangely reminiscent of behaviors in totalitarian regimes. I heard from one university president that he receives on average one letter or email a day calling for somebody to be fired for something that they said. I never thought that kind of behavior would go on in a free society, but it seems as if it can arise if the wrong incentives exist at institutions, which they, which they clearly do on, on university campuses mm -hmm. these days. So no, I, I think if, if the younger generation is, is more fragile, less able to take uh, uncomfortable ideas than we were at the age of 20, then now that we're in our 50s, we have a responsibility to change their minds and expose them to the, the rigor and vigor of, of free debate. Now, in the end, students will be free to choose. Indeed, but we live in incredibly politically polarized times. And I wonder how easy it will be for this to be deemed simply a political move. I mean, the whole issue of freedom of speech on campus has been pitted as a, a political debate, right versus left, left versus right. You know, you even brought up the, the number of, you know, left-wing uh, professors, Democrat voters amongst, you know, um, academic institutions and, and how, you know, that balance needs to be changed. And if that's the case, then that, that, does suggest that the University of Austin will be a right-wing university. No, that, that's, not, that's not right. Luckily, the, there are plenty of people on the right who are now ready to attack academic freedom on the principle that, uh, you know, two can play at that game. And we're seeing more and more cancel-type behaviour coming, coming from the right. So the attacks on academic freedom are now not just from the left, though they certainly were more uh, numerous on the left uh, in the last decade. Mm -hmm. The University of Austin's not a conservative enterprise. Uh, you can see that if you just look at the, the range of people on our advisory board. And our goal is, is not political. On the contrary, our, our goal is, in fact, to pursue truth. That's the ultimate goal by means of academic freedom. And uh, I've been asked numerous times, you know, will we Will we have critical race theory on uh, the curriculum, on the syllabus? And the answer is yes. Uh, students will be able to study all the ideas that they uh, should have access to uh, without any kind of prejudice on, on our part. Our goal is not political. And if we end up uh, looking like a conservative institution, then we will have failed. Who will pay for it, Neil? Well, uh, we are in fundraising mode. This will be a private institution. It will not take money from government. Uh, and so the challenge between now and uh, this time next year will be to raise sufficient funds uh, to have an endowment and have the funds 
to to run the thing, uh, we're intent on making it lean so that the tuition costs will be significantly lower than they are at the established institutions. Uh, Pano Canelos, who is our founding president, has already shown in his time as president of St. John's that he knows how to keep costs under control, mainly by preventing bureaucratic uh, bloat. And, uh, and the vision, I think, is that uh, we will we'll be aiming to have scholarships and bursaries for talented students from uh, less well-off backgrounds so that their tuition will be covered. But it's a startup. It's a work in progress. We're, we're doing extremely well at, at fundraising. We were absolutely overwhelmed by the enthusiasm after we launched. We had hundreds of, of donations within five days of announcing our launch as well as multiple inquiries, literally thousands of inquiries from people wanting to come and work at the University of Austin and study at the University of Austin. I've absolutely mm. no doubt that we've timed this right. People know there's a problem. They've seen it, not least because they've seen what their, their kids are studying during the pandemic. Nothing like a lockdown to make you aware of what your 18 or 19-year-old is doing at college. And, and I think we have now tapped a, a vein of of impatience for a, a healthier academic environment. So I'm confident that we'll meet our fundraising goals. Um, you, you talked about that there hopefully being bursaries available and, and so on so that poorer students can, can study at the University of Austin. A new study from the IFS found that England's most prestigious universities are failing to boost social mobility. Does that surprise you? And do, do, does it, in a way, go hand in hand with some of the issues that you've been talking about? Well, I've taught at both uh, Cambridge and Oxford, and I can assure you that it's extremely difficult for universities to boost social mobility if the system of primary and secondary education doesn't do it. In fact, it's greatly, I think, misconceived to imagine that you can fix problems of, uh, of social inequality uh, at the, by the time people have reached the age of 18. The real issues lie much earlier in childhood development, and this is, this is well known. So I don't think people running a university are going to achieve a tremendous uh, change in, in the distribution of, of opportunity, uh, because that is already very skewed at the, the level of, of primary and secondary education. What we can do at universities is, is talent spot. Now, one of the things that I used to do at, uh, at Oxford was to try to seek out schools that did not have a connection to Oxbridge and encourage smart students at those schools to apply. Part of the problem in England has always been inhibition about applying to Oxford and Cambridge, a perception that one isn't somehow going to make the cut. So I don't think this is an, an impossible problem to solve as long as one's realistic about what universities can achieve. We see in the United States quite aggressive uh, efforts to recruit athletes because uh, sports play this enormous part at, uh, at universities in the United States. And our attitude is, well, we're going to have comparable efforts to recruit intellectual athletes. We're going to be looking, scouring the country for talent and particularly looking for talent in, in those uh, so-called underserved, i.e. poor communities where public schools are very defective. Uh, it can happen. Social mobility is possible. I think of my good friend at Harvard, Roland Fryer, who went from being on the wrong side of the tracks in Texas all the way to a tenured professorship at Harvard, mainly because his, his math scores in a college football team 
were exceptionally good. And it was then that they spotted Roland's talent. So I, I think that universities can do more to look for uh, the diamonds in the rough than they do. If we spend as much time in the US looking for intellectual talent as we spend looking for athletic talent, that would almost immediately turn up some, some real wins. You know that you're going to be called the woke uh, or the non-woke uh, or the unwoke or the, I'm not even sure how we express it, University of Austin. And in your writing, you have pointed to wokeism, but what does the word woke mean to you? And does it actually mean anything anymore? I think woke has become shorthand for a variety of ideas, ranging from critical uh, race theory to uh, ideas of, of gender diversity and fluidity, which as ideas are not in themselves objectionable. The problem with wokeism is that it's allied to tactics that are deeply illiberal. And these tactics include cancellations, disinvitations, no platformings, denunciations. That's the thing that I find objectionable about wokeism, that the sense that one gets from the proponents of work ideology, that their critics must be silenced rather than engaged with. And I think anything that's pr predominantly hostile to debate has to be intellectually fragile at some level. If your ideas can't stand up to debate, if the only way you can cope with your opponents is to silence them, there's probably something not very strong about the ideas. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.